Section 13 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer W. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 2. Section 3. Chapter 3. Of the Final Cause of this Irregularity of Sentiments. Such is the effect of the good or bad consequences of actions upon the sentiments both of the person who performs them and of others, and thus fortune, which governs the world, has some influence where we should be least willing to allow her any, and directs in some measure the sentiments of mankind with regard to the character and conduct both of themselves and others. That the world judges by the event, and not by the design, has been in all ages the complaint, and is the great discouragement of virtue. Everybody agrees to the general maxim that, as the event does not depend on the agent, it ought to have no influence upon our sentiments with regard to the merit or propriety of his conduct. But when we come to particulars, we find that our sentiments are scarce in any one instance exactly conformable to what this equitable maxim would direct. The happy or unprosperous event of any action is not only apt to give us a good or bad opinion of the prudence with which it was conducted, but almost always too animates our gratitude or resentment, our sense of the merit or demerit of the design. Nature, however, when she implanted the seeds of this irregularity in the human breast, seems, as upon all other occasions, to have intended the happiness and perfection of the species. If the hurtfulness of the design, if the malevolence of the affection, were alone the causes which excited our resentment, we should feel all the furies of that passion against any person in whose breast we suspected or believed such designs or affections were harbored, although they had never broke out into any action. Sentiments, thoughts, intentions would become the objects of punishment, and if the indignation of mankind run as high against them as against actions, if the baseness of the thought which had given birth to no action seemed in the eyes of the world as much to call aloud for vengeance as the baseness of the action, every court of judicature would become a real inquisition. There would be no safety for the most innocent and circumspect conduct. Bad wishes, bad views, bad designs might still be suspected, and while these excited the same indignation with bad conduct, while bad intentions were as much resented as bad actions, they would equally expose the person to punishment and resentment. Actions, therefore, which either produce actual evil or attempt to produce it, and thereby put us in the immediate fear of it, are, by the author of nature, rendered the only proper and approved objects of human punishment and resentment sentiments, designs, affections, though it is from these that according to cool human reason actions derive their whole merit or demerit, are placed by the great judge of hearts beyond the limits of every human jurisdiction, and are reserved for the cognizance of his own unerring tribunal. That necessary rule of justice, therefore, that men in this life are liable to punishment for their actions only, not for their designs and intentions, is founded upon this salutary and useful irregularity in human sentiments concerning merit or demerit, which at first sight appears so absurd and unaccountable. But every part of nature, when attentively surveyed, equally demonstrates the providential care of its author, 
and we may admire the wisdom and goodness of God even in the weakness and folly of man. Nor is that irregularity of sentiment altogether without its utility, by which the merit of an unsuccessful attempt to serve, and much more that of mere good inclinations and kind wishes, appears to be imperfect. Man was made for action, and to promote by the exertion of his faculties such changes in the external circumstances both of himself and others, as may seem most favorable to the happiness of all. He must not be satisfied with indolent benevolence, nor fancy himself the friend of mankind, because in his heart he wishes well to the prosperity of the world, that he may call forth the whole vigor of his soul, and strain every nerve, in order to produce those ends which it is the purpose of his being to advance. Nature has taught him that neither himself nor mankind can be fully satisfied with his conduct, nor bestow upon it the full measure of applause unless he has actually produced them. He is made to know that the praise of good intentions, without the merit of good offices, will be but of little avail to excite their loudest acclamations of the world, or even the highest degree of self-applause. The man who has performed no single action of importance, but whose whole conversation and deportment expresses the justest, the noblest, and the most generous sentiments, can be entitled to demand no very high reward, even though his inutility should be owing to nothing but the want of an opportunity to serve. We can still refuse it him without blame. We can still ask him, What have you done? What actual service can you produce to entitle you to so great a recompense? We esteem you and love you, but we owe you nothing. To reward indeed that latent virtue which has been useless for want of an opportunity to serve, to bestow upon it those honors and preferments, which, though in some measure it may be said to deserve them, it could not with propriety have insisted upon is the effect of the most divine benevolence to punish on the contrary for the affections of the heart only where no crime has been committed is the most insolent and barbarous tyranny the, the benevolent affections seem to deserve most praise and when they do not wait until it becomes almost a crime for them not to exert themselves the malevolent, on the contrary, can scarce be too tardy, too slow, or deliberate. It is even of considerable importance that the evil which is done without design should be regarded as a misfortune to the doer as well as to the sufferer. Man is thereby taught to reverence the happiness of his brethren, to tremble lest he should, even unknowingly, do anything that can hurt them, and to dread that animal resentment which he feels is ready to burst out against him, if he should, without design, be the unhappy instrument of their calamity. As in the ancient heathen religion, that holy ground which had been consecrated to some god, was not to be trod upon but solemn and necessary occasions, and the man who even ignorantly violated it became piacular from that moment, and, until proper atonement could be made, incurred the vengeance of that powerful and invisible being to whom it had been set apart. So, by the wisdom of nature, the happiness of every innocent man is, in the same manner, rendered holy, consecrated, and hedged around against the approach of every other man, not to be wantonly trod upon, not even to be in any respect ignorantly 
and involuntarily violated without requiring some expiation, some atonement in proportion to the greatness of such undesigned violation. A man of humanity who accidentally and without the smallest degree of blamable negligence has been the cause of the death of another man feels himself behacular, though not guilty. During his whole life he considers this accident as one of the greatest misfortunes that could have befallen him. If the family of the slain is poor, and he himself in tolerable circumstances, he immediately takes them under his protection, and without any other merit thinks them entitled to every degree of favor and kindness. If they are in better circumstances, he endeavors by every submission, by every expression of sorrow, by rendering them every good office which he can devise or they accept of, to atone for what has happened, and to appropriate as much as possible their perhaps natural, though no doubt most unjust resentment, for that great, though involuntary, offense which he has given them. The distress which an innocent person feels, who, by some accident, has been led to do something which, if it had been done with knowledge and design, would have justly exposed him to the deepest reproach, has given occasion to some of the finest and most interesting scenes both of ancient and modern drama. It is this fallacious sense of guilt, if I may call it so, which constitutes the whole distress of Oedipus and Jocasta upon the Greek, of Monimia and Isabella upon the English theatre. They are all of them in the highest degree piacular, though not one of them is in the smallest degree guilty. Notwithstanding, however, all of these seeming irregularities of sentiment, if man should unfortunately either give occasion to those evils which he did not intend, or fail in producing that good which he had intended, nature has not left his innocence altogether without consolation, nor his virtue altogether without reward. He then calls to his assistance that just and equitable maxim, that those events which did not depend upon our conduct ought not to diminish the esteem that is due to us. He summons up his whole magnanimity and firmness of soul, and strives to regard himself not in the light in which he at present appears, but in that in which he ought to appear, in which he would have appeared had his generous designs been crowned with success, and in which he would still appear, notwithstanding their miscarriage, if the sentiments of mankind were either altogether candid and equitable, or even perfectly consistent with themselves. The more candid and humane part of mankind entirely go along with the effort which he thus makes to support himself in his own opinion. They exert their whole generosity and greatness of mind to correct in themselves this irregularity of human nature, and endeavor to regard his unfortunate magnanimity in the same light in which, had it been successful, they would, without any such generous exertion, have naturally been disposed to consider it. Part 2, Section 3, Notes To ascribe in this manner our natural sense of the ill-desert of human actions to a sympathy with the resentment of the sufferer may seem to the greater part of people to be a degradation of that sentiment. Resentment is commonly regarded as so odious a passion that they will be apt to think it impossible that so laudable a principle as the sense of the ill-desert of vice 
should in any respect be founded upon it. They will be more willing, perhaps, to admit that our sense of the merit of good actions is founded upon a sympathy with the gratitude of the persons who receive the benefit of them, because gratitude, as well as all the other benevolent passions, is regarded as an amiable principle, which can take nothing from the worth of whatever is founded upon it. Gratitude and resentment, however, are in every respect, it is evident, counterparts to one another, and if our sense of merit arises from a sympathy with the one, our sense of demerit can scarce miss to proceed from a fellow feeling with the other. Let it be considered, too, that resentment, though, in the degrees in which we too often see it, the most odious, perhaps, of all the passions, is not disapproved of when properly humbled and entirely brought down to the level of the sympathetic indignation of the spectator. When we, who are the bystanders, feel that our own animosity entirely co corresponds with that of the sufferer, when the resentment of this last does not in any respect go beyond our own, when no word, no gesture, escapes him that denotes an emotion more violent than what we can keep time to, and when he never aims at inflicting any punishment beyond what we should rejoice to see inflicted, or what we ourselves would upon this account even desire to be the instruments of inflicting, it is impossible that we should not entirely approve of his sentiments. Our own emotion, in this case, must, in our eyes, undoubtedly justify his. And as experience teaches us how much the greater part of mankind are incapable of this moderation, and how great an effort must be made in order to bring down the rude and undisciplined impulse of this resentment to the suitable temper, we cannot avoid conceiving a considerable degree of esteem and admiration for one who appears capable of exerting so much self-command over one of the most ungovernable passions of his nature. When indeed the animosity of the sufferer exceeds, as it almost always does, what we can go along with, as we cannot enter into it, we necessarily disapprove of it. We even disapprove of it more than we should of an equal excess of almost any other passion derived from the imagination. And this too violent resentment, instead of carrying us along with it, becomes itself the object of our resentment and indignation. We enter into the opposite resentment of the person who is the object of this unjust emotion, and who is in danger of suffering from it. Revenge, therefore, the excess of resentment, appears to be the most detestable of all the passions, and is the object of the horror and indignation of everybody. And as in the way in which this passion commonly discovers itself among mankind, it is excessive a hundred times for once that it is moderate, we are very apt to consider it as altogether odious and detestable, because in its most ordinary appearances, it is so. Nature, however, even in the present depraved state of mankind, does not seem to have dealt so unkindly with us as to have endowed us with any principle which is holy and in every respect evil, or which in no degree and in no direction can be the proper object of praise and approbation. Upon some occasions we are sensible that this passion, which is generally too strong, may likewise be too weak. 
We sometimes complain that a particular person shows too little spirit and has too little sense of the injuries that have been done to him, and we are as ready to despise him for the defect as to hate him for the excess of this passion. The inspired writers would not surely have talked so frequently or so strongly of the wrath and anger of God if they had regarded every degree of those passions as vicious and evil, even in so weak and imperfect a creature as man. Let it be considered, too, that the present inquiry is not concerning a matter of right, if I may say so, but concerning a matter of fact. We are not at present examining upon what principles a perfect being would approve of the punishment of bad actions, but upon what principles so weak and imperfect a creature as man actually and in fact approves of it. The principles which I have just now mentioned, it is evident, have a very great effect upon his sentiments, and it seems wisely ordered that it should be so. The very existence of society requires that unmerited and unprovoked malice should be restrained by proper punishments, and consequently that to inflict those punishments should be regarded as a proper and laudable action. Though man, therefore, be naturally endowed with a desire of the welfare and preservation of society, yet the author of nature has not entrusted it to his reason to find out that a certain application of punishments is the proper means of attaining this end, but has endowed him with an immediate and instinctive approbation of that very application which is most proper to attain it. The economy of nature is, in this respect, exactly a piece of what it is upon many other occasions. With regard to all those ends, which upon account of their peculiar importance may be regarded, if such an expression is allowable, as the favorable ends of nature, she has constantly in this manner not only endowed mankind with an appetite for the end which she proposes, but likewise with an appetite for the means by which alone this end can be brought about, for their own sakes, and independent of their tendency to produce it. Thus self-preservation and the propagation of the species are the great ends which nature seems to have proposed in the formation of all animals. Mankind are endowed with a desire of those ends, and an aversion to the contrary, with a love of life and a dread of dissolution, with a desire of the continuance and perpetuity of the species, and with an aversion to the thoughts of its entire extinction. But though we are in this manner endowed with a very strong desire to those ends, it has not been entrusted to the slow and uncertain determinations of our reason to find out the proper means of bringing them about. Nature has directed us to the greater part of these by original and immediate instincts, hunger, thirst, the passion which unites the two sexes, the love of pleasure, and the dread of pain, prompt us to apply those means for their own sakes, and without any consideration of their tendency to those beneficent ends which the great director of nature intended to produce by them. Before I conclude this note, I must take notice of a difference between the approbation of propriety and that of merit or beneficence. Before we approve of the sentiments of any person as proper and suitable to their objects, 
we must not only be affected in the same manner as he is, but we must perceive this harmony and correspondence of sentiments between him and ourselves. Thus, though upon hearing of a misfortune that had befallen my friend, I should conceive precisely that degree of concern which he gives way to, yet till I am informed of the manner in which he behaves, till I perceive the harmony between his emotions and mine, I cannot be said to approve of the sentiments which influence his behavior. The approbation of propriety, therefore, requires not only that we should entirely sympathize with the person who acts, but that we should perceive this perfect concord between his sentiments and our own. On the contrary, when I hear of a benefit that has been bestowed upon another person, let him who has received it be affected by what manner he pleases. If, by bringing his case home to myself, I feel gratitude arise in my own breast, I necessarily approve of the conduct of his behavior, and regard it as meritous and the proper object of reward. Whether the person who has received the benefit conceives gratitude or not, cannot, it is evident, in any degree alter our sentiments with regard to the merit of him who has bestowed it. No actual correspondence of sentiments, therefore, is here required. It is sufficient that if he was grateful, they would correspond, and our sense of merit is often founded upon one of those elusive sympathies by which we bring home to ourselves the case of another. We are often affected in a manner in which the person principally concerned is incapable of being affected. There is a similar difference between our disapprobation of demerit and that of impropriety. 2. Laticope prope dolomest. 3. Culpa levis. 4. Culpa levissima. End of section 13.